You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.7, A Bunch of Dummies, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and like Elle, I plan to be completely absent from this episode. (laughs) Good luck, Nina. You're on your own. I just realized how true that is, though. (laughs) You sneaky devil. (laughs) Hope everyone is excited to hear basically my voice. For an entire hour. Hey, I'm in the talkback. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and Tom was right. My happiness with Judo's friends was short-lived. And it isn't a spoiler, because in Gundam, every character either is short-lived or will live to disappoint you. Mobosu Breakdown is made possible by the support of 415 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Scott T, and T as in the beverage, S. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This week we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episode 9, Judo in Space, or Uchu no Judo. After the recap and our talk back, Nina has research on the development of small consumer electronics in the mid-80s. But first, there's something else on the radio this morning. Loyal subjects of Axis and space noids around the Earth sphere, this is Voice of Space on Axis Today, where we give you a glimpse into the lives of the everyday heroes of Axis Zeon. I am your host, Captain Nina Nina's daughter. Today, we honor three fallen heroes, Pampa, Wyme, and Bean of the Gaza Storm team. These legendary pilots died to save Shangri-La colony from the Ayug menace, whose use of child soldiers and wanton disregard for spacenoid lives and property exposed them for the unprincipled opportunists they are. Deploying within a colony sector held hostage by the Ayug's Argama unit, the Gaza Storm team fought with care. In protecting the people of Shangri-La and limiting the collateral damage to the colony, these noble pilots demonstrated the highest ideals of Zeonic virtue. They fought honorably, never once sinking to the enemy's level, even as Ayug deployed their state-of-the-art weapons of mass murder like the infamous Zeta Gundam. When the Argama and the Zeta Gundam menaced the colony's citizens and its vital infrastructure with their dread weapons, our selfless heroes of the Gaza Storm team gave their lives to protect the defenseless civilians. Nor did they die in vain, 
In the wake of this pivotal battle, the severely battered Ayug forces abandoned their Shangri-La stronghold. A resounding triumph for our troops. Tonight, when you look out at the stars, remember these heroes and the love they carried for Axis Zeon. So long as the flame of Zeon burns in your hearts, our lost friends and comrades will never truly be gone. From the moment our soldiers put on their uniforms, they have given their lives for the dream of free and sovereign space noids, united under the benevolent rule of the Sabi family. For too long, the Earthnoid-dominated Federation and their vicious running dogs in Ayug have impoverished and oppressed us. Now for our fallen comrades, and all the generations of Spacenoids ground to dust by the boot of Earth. There can be no greater tribute than vengeance. And now the recap for Judo in Space. is leading the Argama to the La Vienne Rose, but is having trouble finding the rendezvous point. An exasperated Bright orders the Argama to search independently, only to find Bicha and Mondo, recently assigned to watch positions, goofing off at their stations. After a sharp reprimand, Bright turns his attention back to the search, and the two new crew members sneak off. In one of the hangars, Judo and Ino learn about dummy asteroids, how they are made, and how they can be used strategically in space. When Lena announces new room assignments, the crew all crowd around to see the lists, and Bichan Mondo grab Ino and drag him off somewhere. Judo notices them leave, but thinks nothing of it. They take Ino to a radio room, asking him to prepare to send a strong signal. When he asks why, they explain, that it will lead the Endra right to them. They intend to sell the Argama out and return to Shangri-La. When he refuses, they remind him that so far, they've survived without depending on adults. What have adults ever done for them? How will the Argama survive what's coming? Better to get what they can and go back to their old life. They struggle, Bicha to hit send and Eno to stop him, until Fa opens the door with a pointed, what are you doing in here? Bicha sends the signal while Ino is distracted, and then claims that they had just gotten lost. When Fa directs them back to the hangar, Ino tries to hang back so that he can tell her what happened, but Bicha interrupts and drags him along to the hangar. Mashima is thrilled to receive the signal. Their efforts to win over the citizens of Shangri-La must have worked. They have a sympathizer aboard the Argama. Against Goten's wishes, Mashima is determined to launch alone in his new mobile suit, the Hamahama, but the men beg, in unison, to be allowed to support him, and moved by their devotion, he allows five Gaza Seas to accompany him, among them Glemi Toto, in his first ever battle. Looking around her, Rue realizes that she has lost the Argama. As she searches, she runs into Mashima. She plays an overwhelmed and inexperienced new recruit, lost on a training mission, and, entirely unthreatened by this young girl, Mashima gallantly orders Glemi to take Rue and her core fighter back to the Endra, 
and out of harm's way. Initially angry to miss the fighting, once Glemmy sees the cute, sweetly smiling Rue, he is completely infatuated. Enol goes to the bridge to tell Bright about the signal, but arrives at the same time that the Axis pilots do, and Bright is too intent on preparing for battle to notice the shy boy lurking around with something on his mind. Next, Enol tries to tell Judo, but runs into the same problem. Judo is on his way to the Zeta, and noticing that Eno is not prepared for battle, yells, Do you have a death wish? Go put a normal suit on! Before shoving Eno back down the hall. Once in the Zeta's cockpit, Judo asks the bridge for an update. How many enemies are there? How many mobile suits is the Arkema launching? We aren't exactly sure, is all they can tell him, and fed up, he gets out of the suit and starts to leave. Bright and Astonaji browbeat him and flatter him in turns. He doesn't have a choice. He's the best Zeta pilot they have. If he doesn't fight, he'll probably die when the Argama is attacked. Nothing they say has any effect on Judo until Astonaji asks him, Don't you care if your friends aboard the ship are killed? And what about your sister? On hearing this, Judo begrudgingly gets back in the cockpit. He launches, and the bridge informs him that they count five enemy mobile suits. Overwhelmed by the data flashing across the Zeta's screen, Judo almost crashes into a piece of space debris before he reaches the Axis mobile suits. The moment they spot each other, the Axis suits open fire. Judo fires back, but after just a couple of shots, his beam rifle runs out of energy, and he discovers that he forgot to bring a spare energy pack. He hustles to dodge Mashima's attacks, but misjudges how to control the Zeta in space, and realizes he is going to need a clever strategy, fast. So he runs, dropping dozens of dummy asteroids behind him. Aboard the Endra, Rue takes advantage of the situation by capturing photos of the Endra's hangar and mobile suits. She pretends to be suddenly stricken with fear of being caught up in the war, and cries very convincing tears as she declares her desire to go home to her parents. Glemmy, concerned and moved by this show of emotion, offers to help her. Meanwhile, Mashima and his men are still chasing Judo, dodging the asteroids and pieces of debris all around them, until Mashima bumps into one and realizes, it's a dummy. He starts shooting at them and shoving them out of the way, and tells his pilots not to be fooled. But the dummies lull them into a false sense of security, and one after another they crash into real asteroids unable to tell them apart from the fakes. This leaves Mashima to face Judo one-on-one, -on -one, beam saber to beam saber. This is when Glemmy arrives, carrying Rue and her core fighter so that she can go home. He's telling her to stay clear of the fight when she slips the core fighter free of the Gaza Sea's grasp and shoots the mobile suit, completely incapacitating it. Before leaving, she loops around to check and make sure Glemmy is okay. Why did you come back? Glemmy asks her. You were kind to me, and I was worried, she tells him, before apologizing and saying that she is supporting the Argama. When Mashima's attention is drawn to the core fighter, he finally realizes it is the same one they fought in Shangri-La. When he attacks, Glemmy shouts a warning to Rue and is shaken to realize that his infatuation has made him betray his loyalty to Axis. The Zeta intervenes before Mashima can grab hold of the core fighter, but the Hamahama is the more powerful mobile suit, and Judo is in trouble. 
He lucks out when an exploding dummy asteroid sends the Hamahama spinning and gives him an opening. With a quick cut of the beam saber, he cuts off one of the Hamahama's arms, and Mashima, afraid to risk more damage since he isn't wearing a normal suit, retreats. As a parting shot, he tells Judo not to get too comfortable. Axis has a collaborator aboard the Argama. On the bridge to report to Bright, Judo and Rue bicker about the fight and about whether they should take Mashima's comment about the collaborator seriously. Sick of their antics, Bright shouts at them that they did well and should go rest. And the Argama finally finds the La Vienne Rose. This episode labors under the weight of having to set up a whole new arc of the show, a whole new set of dilemmas and conflicts, new character turns, and the introductions of new characters, as well as the much foreshadowed new mobile suit, the Hamahama. From that perspective, I think this episode actually does a very good, very interesting job of setting up those conflicts. In particular, I think this episode sets up a contrast between the various different young people from Shangri-La. For all that Elle apparently takes a powder, just does not appear in the entire episode. (laughs) Not even in the background. Which is weird, given how important all the rest of them are in this episode. But we do get some very clear contrast between Bicha and Mondo, Judo, and Ino. We get the romantic drama of Rue and Glemmy. (laughs) And the show highlights what I imagine is going to be a through line of this next arc, which is the idea of childishness. They do so much with the idea of what it means to be a child, what it means to grow up, what childishness is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And what the show presents as a kind of inherent, inevitable conflict between uh, childishness, youth, children, and adults on the other side. The other main theme that I see woven throughout this episode is deception. And the place where deception and childishness intersect is with Bicha, Mondo, and Eno, and their little mini storyline in this episode. You could also argue that it comes up with Rue. Oh, absolutely. But I have a separate thing about Rue. Okay. We'll get there when we get there. (laughs) All right. Now, an interesting thing happens in this episode where the positions of Bicha and Judo relative to the Argama, relative to the question of becoming a member of Eyug, have kind of switched. When they were in Shangri-La, Judo was the most reluctant one. He had to be talked around, and Bicha was one of those talking him around. But now that they're out in space, Judo is more committed to the program. He has a little bit of reluctance when it comes to launching, uh, but he's definitely on board with the argument with Ayug, whereas Bicha is having some buyer's remorse. My initial reaction to Bicha and Mondo wanting to sell out the Argama was very strongly negative. For one thing, I really don't think they've thought through, A, the fact that if the Endra attacks the Argama, they'll be killed <laughs> on board too, probably. It's yeah. unlikely that the Endra will pick them up and then get like... There's not a good way to preserve their own safety here. 
Two, it doesn't seem to have crossed their minds that the punishment for treason is death. Yeah. So I would characterize what they're doing here as like clever dumb <laughs> because they've actually come up with a pretty clever scheme for making this happen. Sending out the powerful radio pulse in order to alert the Endra to the Argamas location, but they haven't fully thought through the uh, consequences of what they're doing. Like you said, either with respect to getting blown up by Axis or getting shot by Ayug. And nobody made them be here. This was absolutely a choice. They could have stayed on Shangri-La, so I don't have a ton of sympathy for them in my initial reaction, particularly because I don't feel that they necessarily owe anything to Ayug as an organization, but all the people aboard this ship don't deserve to die <laughs> just because they have cold feet. I'm with you on that. And yet, while I don't really sympathize with their position, I do understand it. So on my second watch through. Oh, I see. I see the second thoughts. I realized a somewhat kinder interpretation of their actions because, and Beecha says this very forcefully, we've gotten as far as we have. We've always survived on our own without relying on adults. Basically, what have adults ever done for us? Every adult in their lives who should have helped them has been useless at best and and possibly you know actively harmful at worst. We don't know the whole story. Yeah, but we've watched Gundam before, so we know how these stories go. And so for all that we know the Argama and we know that in some respects the Argama is trustworthy, they don't have any reason to believe that. Yeah, what really got me is Mondo's line when they're trying to talk Eno around. And Mondo says, how long do you think Judo is going to last out there? Because these kids don't know that they are the protagonists in an anime series. All they know is that their friend Judo is stuck piloting this single mobile suit defending a warship in the middle of a war. What do you think the average number of missions survived was for the you know, 14-year-old kids being recruited into the Nazi, Imperial Japanese, or Zeon armies toward the end of those wars. It was low. And this then gets reinforced later in the episode, when Mashima has his Gaza Sea Squadron out with him, and they're all green, fresh, partly trained, and poorly led pilots, and four of them get wiped out in the span of a couple of seconds in one of the both best executed but also most horrifying scenes in the episode, and maybe in Double Zeta so far. This behavior on Bicha and Mondo's account sets up a direct contrast with Judo, who is all set not to pilot the Zeta because they can't even tell him how many enemies he's going to be fighting. They can't tell him anything. <laughs> they just want him to go out there blind. This is like, for Judo, this is like a violation of the social contract. He'll pilot the Zeta, but he needs them to do their part too. And they try to browbeat him. They try to flatter him and none of it works. The thing that gets him back in the Zeta is, are you just going to let your friends on the Argama die here? Bicha and Mondo are not really thinking of anyone else. Sort of their little group, kinda. But as we pointed out, they have not really thought through the safety implications of what they're doing. <laughs> Judo is, as ever, driven by the desires of or concern for his sort of found family, his friends, his crew. Yeah, 
Picha and Mondo may not even view what they are doing here as a betrayal because they don't really view themselves as being aligned with Ayug, as being aligned with Bright and the whole crew. They just happen to be there on the same ship. However, there is a reason why the idiom is that we're all in the same boat. <laughs> and that's even more true on a spaceship. What affects the ship affects everybody aboard. Well, there's that parable about the frog and the scorpion. Tell do, me more about the parable of the one? frog and the scorpion. The scorpion needs to get across a stream. And he asks the frog to take him. And the, the frog says, I don't want to take you. You're just going to sting me. He says, no, no, I like, I really need to get across the stream and you can swim me across. And so, you know, he finally convinces the frog and gets on the frog's back and the frog starts across the stream and the scorpion stings him. And the frog's like, now you've done it. Now we both drown. <laughs> it's sort of a leopards don't change their spots kind of a thing. Like, I am amused by the notion of a scorpion who is just like so addicted to stinging things that he can't stop stinging even when it means his own death. I never thought the leopards would eat my face. Say the kids who broadcast a leopard attracting signal. <laughs> Finally, from that group, we have Enol, who I suppose to me represents some attempt to walk the tightrope between two positions, and he's not managing it. It doesn't work. Because uh, I don't think he's purely shy. I think he's sort of hoping that he'll think of a way to tell someone about the radio signal that does not get his friends into trouble. And there's no way to do that. <laughs> no. I have a lot of sympathy for Eno. I think anybody who has had dumb friends in the past can understand where Eno is coming from. Still disappointing. Yeah, because if he really wanted to tell someone, he would interrupt what they're doing. He would yell it. He wouldn't start with, hey, uh, or I need to talk about... Uh. <laughs> but... Also, you know, any kid who's ever done something wrong <laughs> and had to tell an important adult in their life about it uh, understands that feeling, that initial fear of admitting that you've done something wrong. And to some degree, once they're under attack, it doesn't actually matter when he tells them. They can't prevent it at that point. The bad thing has already happened. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I think if he really wanted to tell someone, he'd have managed it one of those three times. <laughs> so I think there are two sort of classical narrative resolutions to the Bicha, Mondo, Eno conflict here. One of them is that they join Ayuk properly. They align their own interests with Ayug, and so uh, their lack of motivation and their desire to escape are overcome by their new feeling of camaraderie. Another approach, and these two are not mutually exclusive, would be to have them suddenly realize the stakes of what's going on, the life and death consequences of their actions. Do you have a sense for which you think it's going to be? It's hard to say because I don't necessarily feel like I have a great grasp of the storytelling in Double Zeta yet. In another Gundam, in another Gundam series, I would say the second, and I would say it would be through the loss of someone. That something they do is going to actually get someone killed and they're going to realize they don't like being responsible for that. Or someone's going to die protecting them or, you know, something in that vein. Right. There's going to be a Ryu or a Matilda or a Woody or a Slager or I'm just going through the list of people who do this. Roberto, Apoli, Batch. Saigusa. Yeah. Four. So we know this. Moar. Sarah. So we did see Saigusa 
die trying to save Fa at the very beginning of Double Zeta. But I don't know how likely they are to do something like that again. It's it's hard to say at this point. Yeah, the tone has been so much lighter. Although this episode does bring back in some of that emotional whiplash that Gundam has used so powerfully in the past. I mentioned that scene earlier where the Gazas get destroyed crashing into asteroids. Uh, and I want to focus in on that a little bit because it's about five to ten seconds worth of the episode, and yet, uh, at least for me, it, it hit me very powerfully. Well, it's horrifying because Mashima is the one who tells them, okay, it's dummies, don't let it scare you, because he is an experienced pilot and can tell dummies apart from regular asteroids And once he knows what to look for. It's clear early on that he's treating everything as asteroids, but once he realizes that there are dummies in there, he seems to be able to judge which ones are dummies and which ones are real. It never occurs to him that his pilots cannot do that. Yeah, and it happens so quickly. He gives them the order to just charge straight forward and not worry about the dummies. Uh, and then there is a cut where we see the Gazas flying through the asteroid field, and they actually are like just running through the dummy asteroids, and we see dummy asteroids popping. And then it's while we're looking at Mashima, like he's in the foreground, we're inside his cockpit, but we see on one of the monitors behind him, the first Gaza hits an asteroid and explodes. And he looks, he's shocked, and then we see all of the other ones go. And the way it's put together is just like gripping. And it's immediately followed then by Judo, who is like laughing at how clever he is that he's managed to pull off this trick. The other thing that struck me in this scene, we have seen Gundam protagonists count kills many times before. Is a thing Amuro did when he finally accepted, like, okay, I'm doing this violent, horrible thing. I'm just going to count them as I go. We saw Camille do it. This is the first time we hear Judo mention it, and he miscounts. He's off by one mobile suit. <laughs> We've never seen anyone do that before, and I think it's part of a... Like you said, the general theme of inexperience that runs through all of this. Because when he first launches, he forgets the spare battery pack for the beam rifle. He doesn't know what he's supposed to say <laughs> on the launch deck. He has to think for a moment. And then he's like, ah, oh, right. Judo ashita. Zeta. He struggles to fight in space. He has never fought in space before. He even has trouble just like looking at the monitors and parsing all of the data that's coming at him. And like many people trying to learn a very complicated skill, he's like, nobody could possibly keep track of all these things at the same time. He says, this is not humanly possible. We know it is. He knows it is. But that sense of being overwhelmed by all of the many, many things you need to do all at the same time. Tom and I coach karate sometimes. It's a thing that happens to people who are learning karate. It's a thing that happens, I imagine, with almost any skill, right? If you're not being taught in a very sort of conscientious way to limit your focus to just a few things, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by everything that you're supposed to be doing all at the same time. Or get distracted for half a second and almost crash into your commanding officer. Yeah, we know this is Glemmy's first fight ever. Given that everyone else in that group dies, I did wonder how many of them are completely raw recruits. I would guess all of them. 
when they start dying, Mashima does say that they're all only partly trained. Yeah, you see that and you think, what a absolute meat grinder these battles are for the fresh recruits. No wonder Bicha and Mondo want to get out of there. And in previous Gundam series, we have had a sense both of natural aptitude from the pilots and also that they were being trained. You know, they were put on simulators. They were given training exercises. There was a much more visible effort on the part of the war machine to prepare them to be good pilots. It really does feel in Double Zeta as if that's been abandoned. There's just no time. There are no resources. I mean, I'm sure these Xeon pilots had plenty of simulator experience, but they weren't prepared for the difficulties of flying and fighting in a dense debris field. Contrast this with Rue, who has clearly been like trained uh, quite extensively and does have some natural aptitude. Rue is in many ways marked out to us as an ace, from the custom flight suit to the cocky attitude. Absolutely. But even Judo, not really getting training. Uh, we've seen what amounted to gunnery training for his compatriots, which was, here is the turret. You'll figure it out. <laughs> or yelling at Eno in the hall, go man a gun or something. The most training we see any of them get is the demonstration of how the dummies are made and how they work and what they can be used for. And that felt like a very concerted, conscientious effort to be like, okay, here are some of the tools at your disposal. Here's sort of how they work. And see, they blow up massively once we put them out in space and you can use them this and this and that way. But I sort of doubt Judo's getting much simulator time, given how overwhelmed he is just by the visuals. And I assume that the simulators are occupied by Shinta and Kum most of the time. We've mentioned a few times the idea of childishness and inexperience, but I want to come back to it and speak to a couple of other elements that popped up throughout the episode that I thought were significant. I love Bichan Mondo playing around with a calculator and a Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> when did Walkmans come out? It's a good question. Uh, but sort of classic, you know, O-teens and their electronics not taking their work seriously. For anyone who didn't catch it, Bicha is listening to Anime Janai on his Walkman. Shinta and Kum chasing each other through the ship, even as they are working, uh, Bright characterizes Rue's stubbornness and her unwillingness to just admit that she's lost with childishness. You know, Lena announces new room assignments for everyone, which someone mentions is like being at a boarding school. The bickering between Rue and Judo, because Rue often seems very mature, but something about Judo gets under her skin <laughs> and the two of them start bickering and suddenly she seems the same age as them. So I wanted to talk about this because I think this episode starts to set up Rue and Judo as natural foils, and it's because they are so similar to each other. Different in some important ways, but very similar. Their overconfidence, their cockiness, their flexible relationship with the truth, uh, their complete disregard for any notion of uh, honor in fighting, as well as their skills uh, and their prominent place within the argument. It's sort of a case of two very big egos crashing into each other. 
One absolutely defining trait for both of them is that no matter how badly they screwed up their mission, they will come back onto the bridge whistling a jaunty tune and talking about how great they did at their mission. You know, just from their color schemes, they've got kind of the red oni, blue oni, like personality clash trope going on. I mean, people who hate each other who fall in love with each other is a classic romantic arc. Rivals to lovers? Well, but not even, not even rival. I mean, sometimes rivals. And certainly there is a sense of rivalry there. But just like the two people who can't stand each other. You know, it's very much ado about nothing. The taming of the Rue. Except I don't think Rue is ever going to be tamed. And I also <laughs> don't think that's what Judo would want or would try to do. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Gosh, Tom, your content has to back up your funny word play. The Ugh. puns don't work. If it <laughs> All right, well, fine. The last scene of this episode is the blaming of the Rue. <laughs> One thing Rue is better at is rolling with it. Judo is all like objections until he gets talked around. Rue gets captured by Mashima and Glemmy and that whole group. And her immediate response is to start taking like spy photographs of the inside of the Endra. Yeah, she is very good at her cute, innocent young girl act. However, I do wonder if it would have worked on not Mashima and not <laughs> Glemmy. Glemmy, because of his inexperience and because he falls for her immediately, uh, Mashima is a sucker for a pretty face. We've seen it time and again. We've also seen other people react much more skeptically to this kind of thing. Sarah tried it on Camille and Camille was not having it. <laughs> I think Rue is better at it, but I also think Camille was much more skeptical. Oh, yeah. I mean, Camille's mere presence in an episode like this would totally change the dynamic. Like in that scene where they're demonstrating the dummy maker and Judo like gently teases Torres about, oh, why didn't you use dummies during that fight? And Torres is like, well, I, I mean, I, and then Astonaji backs him up and everybody laughs. If Camille had been there instead of Judo, Camille would have earnestly wanted to know why Torres didn't use this tactic. And then someone would have hit him for asking. Would have been a completely different scene. Sure, I'm just saying within the universe of Gundam, we have a particularly credulous <laughs> <laughs> cast right now, especially on the Axis side. Are there no women in Axis? Glemmy acts like he's never seen a cute girl before. Well, okay, so besides the sort of inherent sexism of the show and the inherent sexism of, you know, anime made in the 80s, as well as of the military, uh, we also have to remember Axis is or was a mining asteroid way out in the space boonies, which was inhabited originally by deep space miners. And then when the Xeon exile happened, it would have been important political figures uh, and surviving military units. So that male dominated world would have been transposed onto Axis which being a mining asteroid was already probably majority male to begin with. I had not considered that. I assumed sort of generalized sexism. Uh, there have been some recent studies into just like crowds in animated programs and how they are substantially more male than female, even in situations where that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's also a big factor. You know, we've seen Haman, Minerva and Minerva's maids. Those are the only women we've seen on the Axis side. Uh, and since Double Zeta started, it's just been Haman. They have made a point of including some women on the AU side at various points. It's nowhere near half, but it's substantially more women than we see in the Axis military. 
Do you know what Rue and Glemmy's final interactions most made me think of? Someone slowly inserting a knife and then twisting it? They made me think of Day of Dakar and that young Titans pilot that Bill Torchka oh. talks to and she tells him to listen to the broadcast and it blows his mind. It, cha- it completely changes his whole worldview. Lieutenant Addis Ajiba. Was he a Titan or Federation? I don't titan. remember. But you can tell he's he's just sort of been fed a line about what it is he's doing. He believes it completely. He's never thought any deeper about it or questioned it. And when he does have to question it, you can tell it makes him deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) It's a kind of paradigm shift that really shakes a person's core because it, it makes them question things that they've built their identity around. And this exact same thing is happening to Glemmy. He has some great destiny that he has decided he will bear. Which is tied to being a an Axis Zeon pilot. And yet, the moment he thinks he's in love with a girl, he betrays his own cause to protect her. Thoughtlessly. Heedlessly. Right. It, it just happens. It's not something he plans. And I don't think that he would have if she hadn't come back to make sure he was still alive. See, that's what I mean about sticking the dagger in and turning it. She has left a, a mark on this kid that is not going to go away. Well, she knows she took advantage of and manipulated him, and she feels bad. <laughs> but, like, not that bad. In the same way that Judo never feels that bad for any of his schemes. Assuming for a moment that uh, these interactions Mashima is remembering with Haman actually did happen, which is by no means a safe assumption, but... Assuming that they did actually happen, I would bet that Haman just like has a separate wardrobe for her interactions with Mashima. So the dress she was wearing today, like... I cannot imagine her actually wearing that dress. I think Mashima's brain is full of mush and imagined (laughs) Haman memories. Mashima? (laughs) But I'm, I'm picturing her going to her like valet or her maid or whatever and being like, no, no, no. Bring me the dress that will absolutely destroy that besotted fool. I want to eradicate Mashima. He should be beat red the moment he sees me. Just enough leg, just enough cleavage. <laughs> it's tasteful. While we're talking about Mashima, do you think Goten had the men rehearse their simultaneous begging of like, let us come with you, let us support you? There are exactly two possibilities for this scene. One, Goten had the whole team rehearse that. Two, it didn't happen, and Mashima just thought it did. I think Goten rehearsed them. Because he's realized Mashima has no interest in practical, common-sense notions, but he loves big emotional displays of loyalty from his men. (laughs) Their passion, their fighting spirit. Their love of him. Their love of Lady Haman. It was a weird detail for them to include, but Mashima was either crying or has a cold. (laughs) He sort of dabs at his face and blows his nose. It is a weird detail to include. This is right when he launches the Hamahama for the first time. What a large mobile suit. So vast. The sheer mass of that lad. So the Hamahama, if you ever get a good look at it, uh, it has a couple of really interesting visual things. One of them is that its head looks like a like a demon, like a fish demon kind of thing out of Buddhist mythology, which is why I think they have Rue doing the like hands together and raised. Please, please don't hurt me. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's a very distinct, very religious gesture she's doing. 
And I think it's because of the the look of the head of that thing, very demony. The other thing is it's uh, it's got maneuvering thrusters like all around its midsection, and it makes it look kind of like a skirt, but it also kind of looks like the overlapping petals of a rose. The name of the Hamahama, I'm not positive where it comes from, but Hama is how you would say hammer in Japanese if you're using the loan word. Hama can also mean something that's unfinished or an idiot. <laughs> so the Hamahama could be the idiot hammer or the unfinished hammer or the, or unfinished, the unfinished idiot. idiot. And now, Nina's research on consumer electronics. Toward the beginning of this episode, Bicha and Mondo are goofing off at their stations. Mondo is playing around with a handheld calculator, and Bicha is listening to music on a personal music player hooked up to a pair of headphones. These are very specific activities, so I wondered, why include them here? Well, the 1980s are an era we associate heavily with personal and home electronics. Previously bulky pieces of equipment became smaller, even handheld or portable, and also became cheap enough to be affordable in the mass market. And who adopts new technology with the greatest enthusiasm? Teens. So the time has come to talk about some iconic personal electronic devices. The Sony Walkman and the handheld electronic calculator. Their history and what they were like in 1986. The Walkman's story started when Sony co-founder Masaru Ibuka wanted to be able to listen to music while traveling for business. Initially, he did this by toting around Sony's cassette tape recorder, but obviously this was not ideal. It was large and heavy, and without headphones, he was liable to annoy anyone else around. And either out of total selfishness or a brilliant ability to see a gap in the market, he charged executive deputy president Norio Oga with designing a playback-only version, optimized for use with headphones. The design was based off of the Sony Pressman, a compact recording device aimed at journalists that Sony had released in 1977. The very first Walkman went on sale in Japan in 1979 for uh, 33,000 yen, which was about $150 at the time, or the equivalent of $537 today. And they vastly outsold their projections. They were expecting to sell 5,000 units a month, and in the first two months sold more than 30,000 units. They also developed and included, with the Walkman, specialty headphones that were super light compared to other headphones at the time. They developed these because most market versions of headphones at that time weighed as much as the Walkman itself. Uh. Or more. <laughs> and they were like, that's just silly. We can't... We can't have the headphones be heavier than the playback device. <laughs> the launch event for the first Walkman model was quite unique. Per Sony's website, journalists arrived at the Sony building, which is in the Ginza neighborhood of Tokyo. They were escorted onto a bus, and each of them handed a Walkman. They were taken to Yoyogi, which is a major park, and after disembarking and receiving a brief greeting, they were instructed to put on the headphones and push the play button. The journalists listened to an explanation of the Walkman in stereo, while Sony staff members and students hired for the launch carried out various demonstrations of the product. 
the tape journalists were listening to asked them to look at various demonstrations, including a young couple listening to a Walkman while riding a tandem bicycle, people rollerblading and skateboarding. As they listened to an explanation of the Walkman, journalists were also able to sample the audio quality and see what people could do with it. From then on, the focus of the marketing efforts was young people. They held demos at college festivals, they got famous pop stars to do ads, and they spent time in neighborhoods popular with young people, offering passersby a chance to try out the Walkman. They also had people ride the subway while wearing Walkmans as an additional demo and to get people interested and excited in the new technology. And at first, the age group of buying the most Walkmans was people in their mid-20s, but it quickly took off among younger people as a fashionable way to listen to music. In the United States, the release also coincided with a boom in running for fitness. This may sound really obvious to some of our younger listeners, but being able to take your music with you while you worked out was completely revolutionary. Well, and take your music with you without, you know, carrying a boombox next to you. It's also worth noting that some of our younger listeners may not realize that there was a time when uh, running for fitness was not common. There was actually a time when someone said, hey, have you ever thought about this thing called jogging? It's where you just run. And that was a pretty revolutionary idea at the time. They decided to sell the Walkman internationally very shortly after the successful release in Japan. There was some debate about the name. Overseas subsidiaries thought that the Japanese-English name wouldn't work in other markets, so they came up with names like Soundabout for the U.S. market and Stowaway for the U.K. But the Walkman's fame preceded it. It quickly became known internationally by the Japanese brand name, and it was decided to have just the one name the world over. This also simplified sort of legal strategy around getting trademarks and protecting the brand, it would have been much more complicated to do that if there were different brand names in different markets. This wound up being highly beneficial for Sony, since the brand name Walkman became synonymous with portable headphone stereos. The term Walkman was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 1986. 1986? <laughs> hey, that's our year. The Walkman design underwent frequent tweaks throughout the 1980s, and new models were released pretty much every year. The 1981 release was a lot smaller than the first one. 1982 added built-in Dolby noise reduction. 1983's model was smaller still, barely larger than the cassette itself. 1984 through 86 added auto-reverse, rechargeability, previous models had only used AA batteries, and remote control. Being able to recharge the Walkman made it less expensive to own and operate, and that model weighed less than 200 grams, or less than half a pound. Or around 24 Babylonian shekels. <laughs> You're a weird one, Tom. Despite its wider popularity, the Walkman was also strongly associated with youth culture, and therefore popular music and street style. It had strong associations with urbanity, a way for on-the-go city dwellers to listen to what they want, when they want, a symbol of choice and independence. And it continued a trend of Japanese consumer electronics whose Japanese-ness meant that they were high-tech, high-quality, and miniaturized. The Walkman's success contributed to wider adoption of the compact cassette format. They had been around since the late 1960s, 
but they didn't outsell vinyl until 1983, just a few short years after the introduction of the Walkman. And they continued to be the best-selling home audio format until they were overtaken by CDs in 1991. They never saw the same resurgence in popularity that vinyl did, but Sony didn't stop manufacturing the Walkman until 2010. Huh. If they didn't stop making the Walkman until 2010, that means there was a significant overlap between podcasting and the Walkman. How many podcasts were released on cassette tapes for Walkman? I'm going to guess it's more than zero. (laughs) If not, we could be the first. As for the calculator that Mondo uses in this scene, you might wonder why I would want to talk about it at all. It's rather large and simple compared to the calculators many of us use today, even for high school-level math classes. However, compare it to the electronic calculators of only 20 years before. Electronic calculators in the 1960s were large, heavy, desktop machines. They used hundreds of transistors, multiple circuit boards, and required AC power, which is to say they had to be plugged in. A desire to make calculators smaller was one of the driving forces in semiconductor development at that time. And by 1970, there were calculator models that were portable and battery-powered. The first prototype was developed in 1967 by Texas Instruments. It could add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and printed answers on a paper tape. In case some of you have never seen a paper tape calculator, there's no screen to output your results on. There's a tiny printer in the machine that prints on a roll of paper. The first truly pocket-sized calculators would be introduced shortly thereafter. The Japanese-made Bisicom LE120A was marketed in 1971. It was also the first calculator to use an LED display. It was powered by four AA batteries. Hang on, LED or LCD? LED. Oh. LCD displays actually came up later for calculators. Ah. Throughout the early 1970s, there were numerous technical improvements to calculators, but they remained a luxury item. The electronic components were still very expensive, and production runs of calculators were small. It wasn't until the mid-70s, around 1976, that calculators had become small and inexpensive, costing only a few dollars. And in 1985, Japanese company Casio released the first-ever graphing calculator. While we hear Mondo narrate what he's doing, and he is in fact doing very simple addition, the mass availability of pocket calculators starting about a decade before Double Zeta likely means that many young people had calculators of their own by this time, a fact that would have seemed very strange to a generation that had grown up without them. A generation that associated calculators with business applications, the hard sciences and engineering. They would be one more marker of youth culture and modernity in a world with an increasing variety of affordable, commonplace consumer electronics. Next time on episode 3.8, Drifting. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 10, and the four was shadowed. The Lumpen Proletariat. <laughs> Lighten up, it's just a war. 
good actions with questionable motivations. Old Lady Cranky Pants. Saboru in both senses. Finishing each other's sandwiches. Sentences. Haro helps out. And, in the words of the well loved and much missed Terry Pratchett, personal is not the same as important. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. The music used in Access Today was Epic Orchestral Trailer by My Opus. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... AUG needs to modernize their recruitment approach. Forget about free lunchboxes. They should be giving out you-will-become-a-monster energy drinks and, I don't know, AUG-branded lanyards? You know, what do teenagers like? <laughs> Duh, Tom, teenagers like Walkmans. And calculators. So they don't have to do any of that pesky mental math. Kids nowadays. Rassum frassum. Youth culture. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. Uh, So I I was not thinking clearly, and I made a mistake, which is that I put my wine in the big glass, and I put my tea in the small glass. (laughs) I think that sounds exactly correct. (laughs) Friends. Rumens. Country mondos. Nobody thought this would sell, by the way. Everybody thought, you can't sell a a tape player that isn't also a tape recorder. No one wants that. And yet. Oh, and then I'm going to do an antiquated one. When you're ready, I'll redo that sentence, and you can add whatever weird thing you want. (laughs) I think I still have a mini cassette recorder somewhere. Mini cassette or regular cassette tape? Mini cassette. Oh, yeah. The conversions, man. One of my sources noted the uh, very sexist marketing at the time for calculators. It was very much like, ah, men will use calculators for important work stuff like engineering or tax accounting or, you know, science, maths. Ladies, wouldn't you like to have a calculator so that you can calculate how much you're spending at the grocery store? If that weren't enough to tell us about the extremely distressed state of the Argama, they have so little manpower, they are not even bothering to repair the Methus, even though it is their only other mobile suit, apparently. Poor, sad. 
delaginated, <laughs> methods, bisected, drawn and halved. Which I think is why they have Rudo. Which is why I almost called her Rudo. <laughs> That's their ship name, I guess.、Um, I think we've talked through all my points. This one felt really good. I much prefer doing talkbacks for single episodes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Judo in space. <laughs> There is somebody hanging out on the sidewalk right outside this window, having a very loud, angry conversation on their cell phone. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. Lola, not Zeta Gundam. I'm gonna be trapped in Zeta forever. <laughs> Love it. Wakate. Mas. <laughs>